I'm Ray Barry, and this is the Audio Wave Cafe podcast. On this episode, my guest is Harley Feinstein. He was the drummer on the first two albums by Sparks in the early 70s. First, I talk about Do You Need an Electronics Press Kit? And I'll also be shining a spotlight on King, Coventry's much respected 80s new wave band. I'll also be playing Encinitas Moms by Harley Feinstein's band Wack Halen. It's a lot of fun. Anyhow, let's move on. Do you, as an artist or band, have an electronic press kit? Do you even care? Well, all professional artists do have one, in some form or other. And if you want to maximise interest from the media, promoters, music venues and others who may vaguely be interested in you, then you should invest time and effort in making one. Even if it's just to show your mother you're not a loser and you really are serious about the music business. An electronic press kit, or EPK, is basically a showcase of your music endeavours, which includes a bio, audio or video music tracks, promo pictures and a logo if you have one. With you being so smart, you will want to carefully prepare a total package that stands out from all the others out there. In your bio, don't just shout out how great you are, show how interesting you are. Tell your story in a paragraph. Watch your genre. Include references to any festivals and shows where you have performed. If you have supported some name acts, great, list them. Include a few good promo pictures. These can be taken on smartphones, which today are capable of taking perfectly acceptable high-resolution images. Include links to your best music tracks. No one really wants to download your precious music files. Instead, include, say, a link to SoundCloud or Spotify. When you have assembled it all together, does it as a whole create the right image you want to convey? Is it an accurate expression of you or your band? When completed, you could embed the EPK in your website or use Dropbox or Google Drive to host it. If you have a name of, say, a radio presenter who plays music similar to your style, write to them. It just might be an easy choice for them to check you out as you made an effort to connect with them personally. Same goes for music bloggers, venues, promoters, whatever. You can do this when you release a new music track to generate interest. You never know. Someone out there just might get back to you. And wouldn't your mum be proud? My guest today is linking up with me all the way from Solana Beach, California. He's best known for being the drummer with Sparks in the early 70s, Harley Feinstein. Many thanks for joining me on this call. Thank you for having me. I've also got uh, John Hewitt. He's, uh, he's another drummer. He's, uh, he's just chilling in the back. <laughs> he may say a few things later on. That's fine. So I heard it's a chilling. I heard you're having a heat wave in, in, uh, on, the, on that island. Uh, just a few days ago, we had... Almost 40 degrees. I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit. I don't know. <laughs> that sounds cold. <laughs> That's in centigrade. Oh, my God. In England. <laughs> That's unheard of. It's very, very hot. It's the hottest it's ever been. <laughs> wow. And today it's 20... 20- 23, that's almost half. But that's the way it is in the UK. You've been over here. You know what crap weather we have. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't recall it ever being hot. <laughs> okay, then. Harley, uh, what was your motivation for taking up the drums? We're going all the way back to the early 60s. And I was living in Southern California in the West Los Angeles area. And surfing was the big thing. And the music that I loved was surf music. And I went to a local uh, dance at my junior high school and there was uh, a fellow playing the drums 
And I said, I want to do that someday. That's what inspired me. You never saw a guitar. Stop. I looked right past the guitar players. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You did too. Didn't the same as well, <laughs> there was never any doubt. I didn't have a drum set for a while. Um, so I, like a lot of drummers when they're, when they're young, they, uh, they make their own drum sets. So I, I assembled coffee cans and electric saw blades and uh, <laughs> for a few years, that's, that's how I, that's how I learned how to play the drums. At that time, uh, what genre of music did you prefer to play or listen to? You mean when I was first starting, when I was learning? Yeah, yeah. I would say that my favorite genre was surf music. And and when I say surf music, um, I don't mean like vocal surf music, like the Beach Boys or Jan and Dean. I mean more the instrumental surf music, like Dick Dale and the Deltones and the Safaris and the Chantays, that that type of that's what i considered surf music yeah to me that is authentic surf music back in those days in the what mid 60s is that right yeah yeah mid or yeah or maybe just like right shortly before the beatles came on the scene oh, that's right. what we're talking about okay in 1970 you posted an ad in a music store looking for people to jam with who answered the ad right that would have been russell mail answered the ad I was in the bathtub and the phone was ringing. I had been surfing all morning and I was exhausted and I just, ah, I got into the bathtub and, you know, I don't know what I was, maybe 17 years old, something like that, 18. And um, I thought, oh, do I get out of the bathtub and answer the phone? Uh, you know, back then, you know, it was, well, there was, of course, one phone in the house, right? So, and it was in the other end of the house. So I said, oh, might be something important. So I get out of the bathtub and drip water and all the way through the house into the kitchen and pick up the phone. And there's a fellow with a, with a high voice. This is Russell Mayo. <laughs> <laughs> so we had about a two hour conversation. So was he pretty well known? Yeah. At the time. No. Oh, oh no, no, no. He was just, no, he wasn't. Nobody knew who he was just like me. Although I, I understand that he did, uh, have the position of quarterback with the uh, Palisades High uh, football team. So I guess maybe he was pretty well known in his high school. I know, it's amazing. Hard to believe. <laughs> it is. It is hard to believe. The, the original name of the of the band was Half Nelson. Now, that is such a strange name. It's, it's a wrestling move. It's a, it was a complete... Um, nonsense name to me i had i could i never never made any sense out of it and no one ever was able to give me an explanation i don't know where they got the name <laughs> right. but all i know is that uh, a lot of people did not like the name in 1971 you played drums on the debut sparks album produced by todd rundgren what do you remember about that experience uh, i remember it it was um it was a very unusual thing for somebody like me to do uh back then unlike you know now everybody's got a recording studio in their in their music room <laughs> like this like well, you've got a music room as you can see i've got a music room and you know everybody everybody records in those places now but back then recording studios were very sacred places and i had i had never been inside one before and uh, you'd walk in and it was this amazing place with this glassed in control booth and all the blinking lights and i felt like i was on the, on the starship enterprise so i was pretty uh dumbfounded by the experience i was very 
I was amazed that I was able to get to do this. That's, that was my initial impression. Was it the single Wonder Girl that helped get the band their first European tour? I, I'm not sure if, uh, if Wonder Girl had much to do with it, but uh, I don't know who it was that made the decision to select Wonder Girl as the single. I don't believe it was any of the band members. I don't recall there ever being any discussion over the single. I believe it was by, I think it was either made by the owner of the record company or by someone high up in the distribution. The, the, the company that owned, that we were actually were assigned to record with was called Bearsville. But the company that actually distributed the albums, that would have been uh, Warner Brothers. So the, the two companies kind of uh, both had a lot of uh, say in, in what happened with the band. And one of them said, yeah, I think Wonder Girl should be the one that we can promote. And um, I didn't really think it was a particularly good decision. But why we went to England was... Um, how it was that we were able to, uh, our manager uh, basically made that happen. We had a very, we had a very aggressive manager, a very, uh, you know, one of those hotshot cigar smoking uh, at a huge office full of antiques on top of a building overlooking Beverly Hills. And uh, he, his other clients, Tiny Tim was one of his other clients. <laughs> yeah. He liked high voices, I guess. And the, <laughs> And the all-girl band Fanny, who actually were really good, and yeah. Bill Cosby, <laughs> of all people. Bill Cosby. <laughs> yeah, can you believe it? Uh, <laughs> and uh, so he was our manager, and you know he was a pretty high-powered guy. And he would say, boys, I want to tell you what I just did for you. I was over at uh, Warner Brothers, and... Uh, I brought with me a bag of cocaine and I went from desk to desk and I grabbed a handful of cocaine. And I shoved it up at their noses. Next thing I know, you guys are going to England. You know? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I have no idea whether that story is true or not, but that's, that's the kind of thing he would say to us. <laughs> On that tour, the band, the band went down well in England and Europe. Uh, you even played at the Marquee Club in London a few that's times. Right. right. Did you feel Sparks were on the edge of success? Yes. I think had we uh, stuck it out in England, uh, things would have moved along quite nicely. We had already recorded two albums, and we were we had, I, I felt like we were just kind of hitting our stride as a band. We were we were getting better as as players and better as a unit. And if we had done a third album, it probably would have been really good. But we were stopped in our tracks. Yeah. Just like the first album, the follow-up, A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing, didn't sell well. It must have been very disappointing to the band that, back then. Uh, yeah, I, I don't remember much of a sense of disappointment, <laughs> honestly. Uh, I, was, I was enjoying the whole experience. All right. Why do you think Sparks were not as popular in America as, as Europe? I, I don't know. You know, there's uh, why, the, why Sparks wasn't popular. It's hard for me to, to judge the music objectively, okay? Uh, I, I know when people, like when people write about the music from the first two albums, critics, and they, they say that, it, that the music sounded very weird and unusual. And to me, it never sounded weird, okay? It sounded like rock and roll. I mean, we all, that's what we all felt, that this was, that we were just rocking as hard as we could. But I, I know that a lot of people thought it was weird, and, and that was probably uh, why it didn't really get popular. 
And um, I talked. I did talk to Ron um, after Sparks really took off in England. You know, no, the first two albums didn't sell well, and then the third album did sell well. That's when they became popular. So I I sat down with Ron in a in a restaurant um, after they had become very successful in England, and and he 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 told me that he said, look. The only reason why the third album sold better than the second album and why we're bigger now than we were back then is strictly marketing by the record company. That's That was his analysis. We finally got a record company, Island Records, who was willing to uh, get enthusiastic and put some money behind the album. Whereas the Bearsville and Warner Brothers, they didn't, for whatever reason, they didn't invest in the band. Right. I still can't understand why Island Records um, really didn't want the rest of the band members to come over to England. When the Mail Brothers came over here, uh, English musicians were hired for the new Sparks band. Any idea why that could have been the case, that Island Records didn't want you? I don't think it was Chris Blackwell, for one thing. If you've recently read the memoirs of uh, Chris Blackwell, they they just got published recently. Chris Blackwell has an incredible story. Uh, he, He discovered so many bands. I think at the time that Sparks got signed, I don't think Chris Blackwell was really uh, running things hands-on. Uh, he had a partner, and I don't remember who the partner's name was. So was it him? Uh, was it Muff Winwood? I suspect that it was John Hewlett, who was the acting manager at the time. I think he felt that it was a, uh, I think it was his decision, but it's hard to know. Uh, the The story I, I was told was that uh, John, our manager, uh, presented the entire band to Island and said, sign the whole band. And Island said, no, we'll, we'll, we'll pay for two guys, but we're not going to pay for five guys. We're not going to ship five guys over here, put them up in an apartment and uh, pay their living expenses when we go, oh, right. we'll, we'll, we'll do it for two, but not for five. Anyway, that's the story I heard, which is believable. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. So do you know who uh, took over your job in England? You mean uh, Dinky Diamond? Dinky Diamond, yeah. He died a few years ago. I don't know whether you know that. I do, yeah. I heard the story. Um, yeah. Um, he apparently didn't um, didn't do well after he left Sparks. His his life kind of, he became an alcoholic, yeah. That, uh, it's too bad. Yeah, it's really sad, yeah. You then gave up drumming, and you went back to college. Why? Oh, yeah. Um, well, honestly, um, I never really uh, had the idea of being a professional drummer as my my day job, as my you know my means of support. That was that was just never something that uh, I aspired to. I was always felt more uh, interested in. Um, more academic things. I like playing. I love playing the drums. I love playing the drums. I love surfing, skiing, uh, riding my bike, and those are all fun things. And and I kind of put drums in the category of of really fun, enjoyable things I love to do, but not something that uh, that I would want to try to pay the bills with. It's never never been something that I wanted to do. Oh right, okay. In 1995, you took up drums again. You've been in several bands over the years, like uh, you mentioned Wag Haler, Justice Fingers, uh, Crash 74. Any bands that were a particular favorite yours, of yours to be in? Well, the, the first band that I got into in 95 was uh, an all-lawyer band. 
<laughs> that's what, that's what kind of hooked me back into it. There, a bunch of lawyers they said, "Hey, uh, we hear you play the drums. Uh, can you can you want to play with us?" And they were actually some. They were really good musicians. Uh, so that was kind of fun. I enjoyed those guys. We did that for a few years, and then uh, I think the uh, I really enjoyed uh, the uh, Crash O'Malley. That that was really. A fun band, and that's the one that that my wife was singing. And then I had uh, a couple guys from England in that band. Uh, a guy named James Staten played bass. They're from nor- Northern England, from the um, Yorkshire area. And anyway, so that was a lot of fun. And then the, the Crash seventy four thing that was kind of a, a quick thing we put together for we we were taking a trip to England. So uh, three of us were American, and the other three were from. Uh, England, and then we practice together by sending recordings back and forth and played at the, the 12 Bar Club in London. That was a lot of fun. That was very memorable. Uh-huh. In 2021, a documentary was released, produced by Edgar Wright, titled The Sparks Brothers. Can you tell me about your involvement with that? Ron and Russ told me that it was happening. This was all the way back in 2015. They were pretty excited about it. And... Uh, so I went back home and I watched as many uh, movies and television shows that, that the director, Edgar Wright, had produced over the years. So I became pretty familiar with his style and his work. And then a few years went by and I went up to L.A. and he had a studio rented, uh, a very, very professional operation, you know, a big, a big, uh, a nice studio with lots of employees running around and girls putting makeup on and assistants and assistants to the assistants and the assistants to the assistants, you know, one of those kind of operation. And, and, um, they actually sent a, a car down, picked me up and brought me in. They did that. And they, and they, what they did was they lined up. I don't know. I don't know if you saw the movie, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people in the movie that, that get interviewed. I don't know how many people, yeah, 30 yeah. people maybe. But, um, yeah, so it was a lot of fun. And so, I, you know, I had a good, I felt like I had a really good rapport with Edgar because I'd seen all his movies, so I get to talk about it. And so we talked about his movies, and then he shared some uh, some of his favorite music with me, uh, which I remember was The Stone Roses. He was really into The Stone Roses. <laughs> it was very, a very, a very enjoyable experience. Are you aware of any public reaction to the movie as yet? Uh, yeah, I had a, a very good reaction. Uh, I don't know about... England, I don't know about Europe. Uh, that I haven't heard. But here in this country, it, it did have a good reaction. For some reason, it came out here before it came out in England by a lot of oh, several months, I think. It was, you know, scored well, got good reviews, got lots of stars on Amazon and that kind of thing. So as far as I know, yeah, it's pretty well received. Oh, good, good. Are there any interesting music projects or events coming up later this year that you're involved with? The The only thing that I'm... I'm involved with is this right now is, you know, something could change, but right now Wag Halen is the only band that I'm really playing with regularly. And uh, we've got a a connection with a club, a a nightclub in the San Diego area called the Belly Up. And it's, it's generally uh, considered probably the premier venue in the county. Uh, the, when I'm saying, I mean, you know, in the 800 people type, you know, obviously there's, there's like stadiums and things like that, but, but for the, you know, seven, 800 people type of venue, it's the best one. So we, so we're connected with them. We have a good connection with them, a good rapport. So we play there pretty regularly. So that's, a, that's the main thing that I have to look forward to are continued gigs there. 
and I'm going to play um, a Wag Halen track, which is Encinitas Moms, later in the uh, podcast. I look forward to that. I think uh, now's a good time to bring this interview to a close. Harley, thank you so much for being my guest. It's been a real pleasure. John, thanks for chilling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John, good to, yeah, good, to, good to sort of meet you in the flesh. <laughs> and Ray, Ray, thank you for your thoughtful questions. You're welcome. This band broke up more than 36 years ago, and in their four years together produced six singles and two albums. They successfully toured the world and seemed unstoppable. I'm talking about Comedy New Wave band King. It was in 1981 when a certain Perry Haynes first noticed the performing talents of vocalist frontman Paul King. In ska band, we were all turned stereotypes. And when they broke up in 1981, they offered to manage Paul King's next band, Raw Screens. New manager Haynes was a fashion designer and also ran a fashion magazine, and his influence must have been a crucial component to the band's eventual success. I think Raw Screens was the platform where the music and image style was developed, when, in 1982, Raw Screens changed their name to King. In 1983, after a couple of personnel changes, when Lynn Thompson, sax player, left the band, and Colin Heens was replaced by John Hewitt on drums, the rest of the lineup consisted of Tony Wall bass guitar, Mick Roberts keyboard, Paul King vocals, and Jim Lansbury guitar. There is no doubt that Paul King contributed greatly to the band's growing success. Building a following at their gigs, his image, stage presence and strong vocals was a cherry on the cake of the rest of the band's fine musicianship. It wasn't long before King would sign up with CBS Records, but their first three singles struggled to make an impact. The first release, from the Steps in Time album produced by Richard Burgess, was Love and Pride, which charted at number 84. The next two, Soul and My Boots, and would you hold my hand now, failing to reach the top 100. But following the interest generated with an appearance on Channel 4's TV programme, The Tube, CBS decided to re-release Love and Pride, and in February 1985, it reached number two in the charts. Paul King described the song as their anthem. For me, it was the perfect pop song for the era. Recently, John Hewitt kindly loaned me a cassette of a rare live recording at the General Wolf Pub in Fozil, Coventry, recorded in April 1984 and the band performed the song twice. Incidentally, that live recording of the gig showed what a really good, solid band they were. That year, the second and final album, Bittersweet, followed, reaching number 16 in the album charts. The final single, Torture, reached number 23 in 1986. But storm clouds had been circling for some time, and the band dissolved later in 1986, freeing Paul King to pursue a solo career in America. In 1987, he released an album titled Joy, produced by Dan Hartman. In 2015, the other band members reformed, calling themselves King Phoenix, this time without Paul King, replaced by Tony Dangerfield and a trio of female backing singers. You can check out what they were doing back then on YouTube, obviously enjoying performing their old favourites again, and sounding well, revitalised. Not bad guys, not bad at all. Coming up is an original song performed by Wag Halen and produced by Chris Goldsmith with Wayne Wagner vocals, Adam K guitar, Paul Jensen bass and Harley Feinstein drums. Oh, and Rhino intro vocals. Encinitas Moms.
Why you is the neatest moms are looking hot Come by my shop, you know we can stop if you're looking hot Pushing babies straight in a line Ooh, mama, you're looking fine Cruising along and down by the sea By a few escalate your Moms are so hot, so hot. It's the neatest moms are so hot. Living, living down at the mall. You're making wag hill and stand up tall. You're not snobby like a Lahoya moms. You always smile at the wagon Taji parking lot. So hot. That was Encinitas Moms by Wag Halen. If you head over to YouTube, you can even check out their very funny video of the song. Many thanks again to my guest, Harley Feenstein. In the next episode, my guest is Nigel Miffen, bass player from Coventry and Warwickshire punk band The Del Chronics. I'll also be talking about branding yourself as an artist, and I shine a spotlight on Pete Chambers' Coventry Music Museum. Uh, I think that's it. Yeah, I'm done. Till next time.